we demonstrate to them that chronic pain patients who haven't exercised in however long it was in a walker, in a wheelchair with a cane can do martial arts. They can do yoga. They can dance. And so as part of this, we gradually take away this what's called fear avoidance and pain, right? The very thing that they don't want to do is move because it hurts. Welcome to Plant-Based DFW with Dr. Riz and Maya. In our show, we cover topics about lifestyle medicine, such as healthful eating, physical activity, stress management, building relationships, and improving your sleep. We also enjoy talking about topics such as the environment and animal welfare, and we will bring you experts such as physicians, dietitians, and health coaches. And we also like hearing testimonies from people like you. Dr. Palmer Mackay is in the Department of Medicine at Indiana University School of Medicine. He founded and is the director of the Eskenazi Health's Integrative Pain Program. This multidisciplinary program includes a five-week pain school where patients are exposed to and practice such modalities as relaxation response, whole food plant-based diet, graduated exercise, tai chi, chair yoga, guided imagery, mindfulness, and knowledge critical to making healthier choices. The Integrated Pain Program's approach couples psychological and physical functional rehabilitation and uses the patient's strengths and self-identified life values and goals. Dr. Mackay has won numerous departmental and university teaching awards, and his work on pain and opioids has earned him awards in preventive medicine and population health. His is a diplomat of the American Board of Medical Acupuncture, a plantrician, a proud father of twin men, and a student of Taekwondo. Welcome, Dr. Mackay. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to have been able to connect with you. I want to mention that I attended your lecture at the Lifestyle Medicine Conference in Florida, and I was really impressed uh, with the topic of Ikigai. Where should we start off? I'm very interested in this um, pain program that you have and how you use uh, purpose to work with the community. We have been um, working on uh, fine-tuning and improving this program for 19 years Mm -hmm. under its current kind of format or iteration We've been moving along for eight years. And what we found was that the more participatory and the more that you can um, kind of combine the interests and the values of the person with um, functional knowledge and kind of experiential um, components, mm-hmm. the better the results. I was roaming around a farmer's market outside of Indianapolis and I saw in the market a table for Montessori education. And uh, the program was transformed based on the conversation I had with the representatives from that Montessori school, really looking at how can you approach a group education with individuals at different functional levels, cognitive levels, and different ages. And how can you kind of um, collectively exploit those differences and uh, exploit the benefits of the community while advancing this kind of therapeutic input to lower their pain and to decrease their suffering. Working with individuals that suffer not only from physical ailments, so just pain in general, but also depression, 
how you have been able to bring them back to a sense of purpose through Ikigai. I guess, can we start off by talking about what Ikigai means? Sure. I Ikigai comes from uh, Okinawa, and it really is kind of the value, the internal drive that an individual has that motivates them towards action. The simpler way of looking at it is what I call what turns your leaves green. What, mm -hmm. you, what gives you the energy to keep going and to persevere then in the face of fatigue, pain, and poor sleep. So the reward that one receives from kind of overcoming the physical obstacles in the pursuit of that which they value. And, and that's part of the reason we wrote the description of our program about coupling the values and the purpose of the individual. This concept, you know, sounds nice and I'm, I'm sure many people go, yeah, yeah, well, you need more than purpose. And that's certainly true. But what data has, has demonstrated, for instance, in the Open JAMA article of this year, is that individuals who have a higher purpose have a lower all-cause mortality and a very uh, clear lower cardiovascular mortality. Mm. So they tend to live longer. Mm -hmm. If you look at individuals who have chronic pain and you track those individuals in the dimensions of purpose and meaning and search for meaning, mm -hmm. individuals who have a higher sense of purpose tend to report less pain, less depression, and a higher quality of life than those who have an absence of purpose. Mm -hmm. And so there uh, is too, you have the psychological and the physical related to pain, and then directly related uh, to what you said mm -hmm. is um, how does this work particularly for the elderly population? Mm -hmm. There was a trial that I referenced, not really a trial, it's a, a narrative analysis of a group of uh, elderly individuals from England who were in hospice or palliative care. And they entered a group program where they had the um, physical aspect of exercise, the aspect of getting out of the house, which is a, you know, no small task, and then the sense of community and sharing and the individuals in that narrative said that they rediscovered the point. And that point then is kind of a, a synonym to value, purpose, and ikigai. That was the reason, that human connection, that sense of accomplishment, those things that drive you, that's the reason. And even in palliative care and hospice conditions, these individuals found improved quality of life, an increased sense of agency, and an increased physical capacity to do those things which they enjoy. There's a story that you shared about a particular patient who was suffering from depression and you were able to get him to just volunteer. Um, first, I think he started driving the cart around. He's a remarkable gentleman, such a beautiful face. You could see that there was this, the resilience that he had there was a, a potential that we could tap into. Mm -hmm. and he came through the program because his girlfriend had just passed away. Mm. And he was receiving 100 milligrams of morphine in the mail. Mm. And his wife or his girlfriend would come and deliver it to him in bed 
and you would take 100 milligrams of morphine twice a day. Oh my God. Tragically, um, she passed away and he was left, you know, with his world kind of whirling around his bed, not knowing what to do. And he was referred to our program. And so he went through the early stages of our program. It wasn't as um, educationally, physically, and emotionally challenging as it is now. But I, I mean that challenging in a, in a favorable way. You could see him smile and, and start to enjoy it. And when he came in, we hooked him up with our occupational therapy because we were doing goal setting and um, volunteering as a, a form of healing. And she initially got him just to walk out of the house, then to walk up and get a cup of coffee, then to read a cup uh, newspaper where he was drinking the coffee, and then see if he was able to volunteer. And that's where the cart came in. We had just started a program of uh, having a golf cart that would drive people that were infirmed from the parking lot to their appointment mm -hmm. in the hospital. And he volunteered once a week. Then after a couple of weeks, he was there twice a week. And then they had to tell him to stay away because he was coming every day. <laughs> and he was smiling and he was up and doing things and he was losing weight. He was getting good relief from some other uh, you know, kind of um, injections. Mm -hmm. and it, Fast forward now, he's an employee of Eskenazi Health today. So he went from being disabled, both by his pain and by the opioids and depression, to being employed and happy and active, and uh, has become a grandfather uh, over the last couple of years and has really enjoyed that. That's uh, so motivating to hear. How is it that you are able to keep them adhering to some of the um, recommendations that you make? Well, that's good. I thought you were going to ask if I use the Taekwondo to keep them in line. <laughs> Although that's fascinating too. <laughs> My lawyer told me to say absolutely not. <laughs> we take a number of lines. So part of it is just the education. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the great poet, and I think she was our, our poet laureate, Maya Angelou, mm -hmm. that we do as the best that we can until we know better. And then once we know better, we can do better. Okay. And so part of this is just to really educate them about what chronic pain is and how chronic pain is distinct from acute pain. It affects behavior, it affects motivation, it affects sleep. And so we bring that in and we bring in connection between psychological well-being and pain and you know formally and explicitly acknowledge that it's bi-directional they're not just sad because they hurt and they're not just hurting because they're sad it's they're intimately bi-directional mm -hmm. then we demonstrate to them things that they previously thought were impossible and which is like that's a little bit crazy bomber we demonstrate to them that chronic pain patients who haven't exercised in however long it was, in a walker, in a wheelchair, with a cane, can do martial arts. They can do yoga. In fact, they can dance. And so as part of this, we gradually take away this, what's called fear avoidance and pain, right? The very thing that they don't want to do is move because it hurts. Mm -hmm. But one of the greatest ways to get out of that is that movement. We gradually remove that static stationary inertia to create an inertia of movement mm -hmm. and possibility when these individuals realize that 
their potential is greater than what they had been realizing over the recent past, that they can do all of these things. And in particular, coupling it in a group. And it's the, the dance which really has broken down a lot of barriers. So when we play um, you know, happy, upbeat tunes and our group, our staff are dancing and encouraging and laughing and you know, self-effacing, it gives them permission to try. And it gives them the sense of accomplishment when they succeed. There are a lot of factors that go in to generating that individual's ability to sustain these activities. I certainly wish that we were better at it than we are, because every, uh, every class is a, a new learning opportunity. So we, we tweak the program you know, probably every three months to figure out a way to, you know, the, the reason we call it the integrative pain program is that we want to integrate knowledge and practice and skills into their life. Mm-hmm. And we call it a program because it has to be transportable. You're not getting treatment, just the, the 10 classes that you go to, or when you come in for appointments, the treatment and that extension is lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And that it has to be on a, a frequent doses, because whether it's exercise or nutrition, that it is a dose-dependent phenomenon, just like it is with antihypertensives or anti-diabetic regimens. The integrative pain program that you developed really is like giving power back to the people in terms of teaching them what they could already do with the pain and the limitations that they currently have. Often when I hear someone talk about fibromyalgia, I just don't have an answer. I've even been asked if um, whole foods can help with fibromyalgia. Right. And that's one of the the areas of research that I'm interested in. And I'm hoping that my plant-based son, who's in graduate school for psychology, that he follows this because he's very interested in this as well. From a, a health psychology standpoint, what are all the benefits that can be achieved through uh, an anti-inflammatory, healthy plant-based nutrition scheme? And there certainly is data for fibromyalgia. There's data for osteoarthritis not simply through weight loss, though certainly for knee, hip, and ankle arthritis, weight loss is one of the um, key components of the reduction in pain and the improvement in functionality, but not exclusively. Even though we consider osteoarthritis a degenerative arthritis and not an inflammatory one, that that there's a, a continuum And there are a number of people who do have erosive osteoarthritis. And then if you back down from that a little bit, a number of people with osteoarthritis do get a little inflammation in their joints, and yet they don't ever test positive for um, rheumatologic conditions. And so those individuals who can get on a strongly anti-inflammatory diet, especially if it can be supplemented um, as we recommend, Um, Well, as anyone would recommend, with spices and herbs that are known to be particularly anti-inflammatory. The anti-inflammatory approach is key for almost anything, isn't it? I mean, we know processed foods can cause inflammation, but what other kind of foods would you say um, can contribute to inflammation, which then can aggravate a condition? Well, you you live in the state which consumes per capita the most of it. (laughs) 
which is uh, mammal flesh. <laughs> Texas, I think, is still number one. It's not just beef. It's not just pork. It's not just chicken. It's not just turkey, goat, or, or fish, uh, or milk. I mean, all of these things have an inflammatory component. There was an article, I think, that came out last year looking at cardiometabolic deaths. 45% of the mortality associated with cardiometabolic deaths have to do with 10 dietary factors. The two of the most important are salt and sugar-sweetened beverages. Then there's processed meats, but then there are the good things, right? The areas in which we are deficient, like fruits, vegetables, nuts, and uh, leafy greens. So all of those things um, help mitigate against the, the dangerous things that we consume, the, the dairy, eggs, and meat. So we advocate uh, an anti-inflammatory, and we have a listing that we use in our class. What are the strongest herbs? What are the strongest spices for anti-inflammatory? And then we have a market guide for converting your kitchen and pantry into one that is a plant-based kitchen and pantry. People come to the pain school and they attend 90-minute classes twice a week for, I guess it varies, but up to five weeks. And in that pain school, you teach exercises and nutrition. Can you kind of lightly guide us over what the uh, pain school looks like? Sure. They, they come in. What we want to do is what our nurse practitioner calls create a soft place to land. Mm. Want them to feel comfortable at the very onset. But it's hard because the message I'm going to give them is not the message that they want to hear. And that's the message that the opioids are not going to be a way out for the vast majority of those who have chronic pain. In fact, opioids have been largely the thing which has been anchoring them to their suffering. So we go over the pathophysiology of chronic pain. Then we view every class as being... Um, we require of ourselves to give them deliverables. So we have a handbook that we make that goes through how to get treatment for addiction if they're worried about themselves or a loved one. It has all the slides that we use for demonstrating what chronic pain is and the pathophysiology of that. We have um, segments on graduated exercise. So recognizing again, like in the Montessori, we have some people that are illiterate, they can't read, uh, well enough to do it. Our uh, health coach is really good with graphics and she created graphics so that just by looking at it, you're able to do each one of the exercises that we use in our uh, regimen. Then we have um, yoga for low back pain. Then we have elastic band exercises. Then when they get through that and they're stronger, then we have the uh, neutral spine set that's all included in the handbook. Mm -hmm. Then we have the importance of stress management and depression and how to uh, do diaphragmatic breathing, how to do uh, the relaxation response. And then we go through goal setting, then nutrition. And we have best bang for the buck for nutrition. And so we have all that in the, in the workbook. And each class, I kind of think about it as a kinetic, as a movement. So it's a physical movement and it's an intellectual movement and hopefully a psychological movement. So we do the physical exercise, the content, the intellectual exercise, and then we do the stress management. And we do goal setting, 
we do medications, we do the importance of how to occupy your day with an occupational therapist, we do the sleep uh, medicine, yoga, and then we do two segments on nutrition, recognizing that nutrition and all of these things are kind of woven in and out of each class. So that as they leave each class, there's a new content and an increased practice. And then to supplement that, we have the handbook where they can go to websites or books or YouTube that we recommend and, and receive supplemental or just reinforcing information. Mm-hmm. And so we go from a 15-minute exercise regimen, which is pretty calm, uh, the first class, to a 30-minute exercise regimen by the last class. From a two-minute exercise of uh, diaphragmatic breathing to a 10 to 12-minute exercise of mindfulness-based meditation. And during that time, at the first class, we collect data, and the last class, we collect data. So we know how their uh, depression score is. We know how their PEG score is. We know how their their self-efficacy score is, their fatigue and their pain scores, and how much they're exercising. So we can see the dramatic increase in those um, categories in that five-week period. Then after that five-week period of introduction and participation and engagement, then they come in for an individual psychosocial evaluation and the medical evaluation. And then we um, keep that work going for as as long as it takes to either get them where they feel that sense of agency so they're no longer absolutely required to feel that uh, requirement to be so intimately associated with the, the medical system and feel as though they're more independent that they're stronger, that they're empowered, and that they understand ways that they can deal with their pain, that they can deal with their suffering, and they can deal with their sleeping and their weight and their diabetes um, as independent and capable participants, captaining really their own care. I can imagine you have to have a great team of people um, from various capacities. We have had remarkable uh, people in our program. And so as I describe all this, I don't want anybody to think that the, every idea was my idea or every implementation was my implementation. Mm-hmm. The process that I, I like to use is really collaborative so that our medical assistants, our nurse, our health coach, our nurse practitioner, and our behavioralist, everybody drives the work. Everybody helps the individuals who are participants and our behavioralist, uh, had worked with me off and on for 17 years. Mm. She went plant-based, um, started exercising, lost a bunch of weight. Our nurse practitioner isn't 100% plant-based, but she and her family have really transitioned beautifully to eating healthier and healthier and healthier. Mm-hmm. Our nurse, um, one of our um, medical assistants, is probably like 98% plant-based, so that we're able to largely walk the talk, which helps. And there's data on that too, that when you're offering guidance and instruction and coaching, you are more effective if you have actually done it. Well, I am in total agreement with that. If you learn this information and you're not fully 
you probably don't believe the evidence then. You probably don't believe the science behind it. The first few pages of the handbook and the manual talk about that. So if you don't believe the science behind that, then how can you convince someone else to implement those changes? One of my favorite quotes is from the cardiologist at Rush, Kim Williams. Yes. And when he gives talks up in the upper right-hand corner, he tracks the number of cardiologists in his division who have gone plant-based. And so every year it goes up. And I love that quote. There are two kinds of cardiologists, vegans and ones who haven't read the data yet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> After we read the materials, because my husband read the, the manual for the uh, physicians and professionals, and I read the, the other one, you know, we went through the books together and thought, we need to start living some of this stuff, you know, we, we, but the main key that we were talking about was stress management for our own selves. Um, not burning the candle at both ends, not overdoing things, not taking the time for our relationship and our own personal mental and physical health. And so we came back and we immediately went to a three-day retreat on stress management at a, a, a small ashram, which you would never think existed in Texas. Well, Ornish was there, right? Yes. Dr. Ornish is from Dallas. But at the same time that Riz was in medical school in Dallas, Dean Ornish was reversing heart disease. <laughs> when your own staff is not on board, it's pretty hard to convince patients to get on board. Yes, yes it is. And the, um, we've had, like I say, pretty good luck. Um, everybody but um, one member of our staff really dove in. And not just dove in, but dove in and achieved the benefits. Mm -hmm. and then got their spouse to dive in and achieve some of the benefits. One of the benefits for all of uh, our team was that when we run classes, we're doing the stress reduction, you know, a minimum of twice, well, four times every week because we run classes at two different locations. We're exercising four times a week. We're doing music therapy four times a week because every class we do uh, dance and music. Mm -hmm. And we're doing nutrition therapy four times a week. And it really helps the staff. My range of motion in my neck is best when, you know, I'm frequently in the class doing the, the neck range of motions. It just feels so much better. I've been using this as a platform mm -hmm. to transform healthcare for the last eight years. I would have stayed after your lecture to chat because I was really intrigued, but I had to rush out. Are you giving lectures anywhere else? Yes, the, um, this talk has been, a, a, the talk that was given in Orlando has evolved over the, the last eight months. Mm -hmm. We have a, a grant in Indianapolis and the Indiana State Medical Association in conjunction with the School of Public Health mm -hmm. is doing a series on opioid addiction and pain management. And so we've done a series of small talks and podcasts there and one of them is the lifestyle medicine approach to pain. We have a, you know, the veg fest that goes on nationally. We have a veg fest and our institution, my previous institution, Eskenazi Health, sponsors a lifestyle medicine lecture as part of that. So last year was our inaugural um, class, or well, inaugural symposium, and we had uh, Jane Esselstein came, Dr. Esselstein's yeah. daughter. She's a dynamic and uh, prop-driven educator. 
People really liked her trucks and her tabletop demonstrations. This year will be the second uh, second lifestyle medicine symposium. So um, I'm not sure if I'll be speaking there, but I'm working on the planning committee. I've uh, been part of symposium on plant-based education, plant-based therapeutics, um, integrative medicine. So trying to get this message out to as many um, ears as are interested in hearing it. I hear you. It's such a wonderful topic. I'm passionate and my background is not even in medicine, it's in education. But as an educator, I feel this strong desire to help spread the message. This has yeah. been my argument for years and years is that all this stuff really should be a primary intervention, meaning in primary education. We really have to you know, do more of what Michelle Obama was trying to do is get healthier foods in schools, get rid of the pop, get rid of the fruit juices and teach them how to be healthy, how to be resilient all the way through school and not you know, try to force feed them milk and hamburger. What sort of tips would you recommend for people that suffer with some of these conditions that you've listed like fibromyalgia, arthritis, neuropathy? There are a host of things to do depending on uh, really what is most interesting to you. So it could be exercise, could be nutrition, could be stress reduction. There are a lot of great education programs, the Forks Over Knives documentary, if you're a young athlete and you really want to peak your performance, the Game Changers documentary is wonderful. Plantrition.com, uh, Plant Nation, Forks Over Knives, and the organization that I, well, I like all those organizations, but one that I really am fond of is the Physician Committee for Responsible Medicine. There's a strong ethical drive. So there are two things that we haven't talked about. That's the ecological impact and the ethical impact of uh, uh, continuing with the standard American diet, the, the loss of the environment, the acceleration of climate change, and the inhumane slaughtering of millions and millions and millions of animals every day. Not everyone is touched by the ethical argument of the animals. Mm -hmm. I can un understand that. But if you're not touched by the fact that eating these animals is destroying the opportunities that your children and grandchildren and everyone else in the world in 50 years is going to have, then I would ask you to reconsider your understanding of how you want to contribute a legacy to the most important place. And, you know, that's planet Earth. That's our most valuable patient, the one that we have to nurture. They're having whole symposiums now on the devastating health impact of climate change mm -hmm. from generating agriculture to changes in uh, infectious disease agents revolving around this very rapid climate change. Then the loss of species with the devastation of all the forests in uh, Brazil and other areas. But going back to what people can do, I gave some examples of places you can learn about nutrition. They have 21-day challenges. They have seven-day challenges. You can go, I call it the, the uh, strong, weak method. And so every day you do something different. You know, Meatless Monday, Tofu Tuesday, Hempe Hump Day, Thirsty Thursday, where you do smoothie, Refried Friday, Salad on Saturdays, Soupy Sundays, so that 
you can figure out ways of getting in all those good nutritions, removing the animal products and substituting in plant proteins, and then adding spices that you like, turmeric, clove, allspice, ginger, cinnamon, cayenne, then herbs, basil, thyme, oregano, majorum, as much as you know you can get in, the better. You want to figure out an exercise regimen which is suitable for your current condition. So a lot of times we recommend getting into a pool so that you do aquatic therapy or do Tai Chi. You mentioned, you know, how do I approach someone with fibromyalgia? There's good evidence for fibromyalgia and again for osteoarthritis that regularly participating in Tai Chi is beneficial. Mm, that's good to know. If you want to go more traditional, see a physical therapist who's acquainted with chronic pain. If um, you're interested in approaching the pain first by controlling your, your mind and your thoughts, consider doing the relaxation. There are um, phone apps that are, can take you through guided or progressive muscle relaxations. Then you can find uh, someone who can do hypnosis. You could find a group meditation. You could you know, join meditation practices in one of the local uh, Buddhist uh, centers around. So a lot of ways to get in there where you're in a community. And that's why I like the, the water exercise or group exercise or group stress reduction. One of the things that you had written in a possible question was, what's the, the benefit of the community? One of the things I don't want to do is I don't want to be the only one lifting and doing work. <laughs> when I'm in there in a group, it shouldn't be just me telling someone or just me demonstrating because that's somebody in the medical establishment. Mm -hmm. When people who are, are their peers, their fellow sufferers, their fellow heroes, when they see others in worse shape putting forth that effort, it helps elevate your energy. It helps elevate your sense of what's possible and your willingness to, to attempt to achieve that. And you know, there are whole journals dedicated uh, to community psychology. The, what they found was um, the greater sense of community it provides um, lower cost care, a sense of well-being, a sense of enjoyment, and more happiness. They actually have um, brief sense of community scales, and you can use these scales to kind of figure out how engaged, how networked is this person in a collection of people that's meaningful to them, that, that resonates with them. And then there, there are data, well, look at AA, right? AA is largely driven by the power of the group, that collective energy and responsibility and accountability. So the accountability is another big factor. Is you start talking to somebody on the first class, they're expecting to see the next class and the next class and the next class. There's power in groups in coming together and building a sense of trust and community and then people that you can stay connected with later on. That's one of the things that we've piloted here and there is setting up um, external networks. So the other thing that we did to help facilitate that is we created our own Facebook page. So we would post recipes, exercises, stress reductions, accomplishments, and then have uh, our people 
send in questions, comments, encouragements. And that's been a, another nice, you know, um, virtual community that can continue some of that, that physical closeness and benefit that they developed in class. I didn't ask your personal story of how you became plant-based and how you were drawn to lifestyle medicine. Would you like to tell us about that? So if you, if you go back in time, I was one of the most unhealthy uh, individuals from a lifestyle standpoint. What I did do is that I always emphasized uh, exercise in my life. And that's been true since I was 16. But uh, I had a, a genuinely crappy diet all the way up and including medical school. And I can give you a very specific example. My uh, three best buddies from medical school and I will meet up you know, maybe every two years. But the first time we met up after medical school, it, it had been almost 20 years. We go there and one of them pulls out a bag of Fritos and says, Palmer, do you want your salad? And that for years, from the time I was a teenager through medical school, I used to call Fritos my salad. And I smoked. Oh, my God. <laughs> through medical school. Wow. And so then I realized as I was counseling individuals not to smoke, as I smelled of uh, Marlboro's, it was pretty inappropriate. And then I um, started to go towards uh, high fiber. Then I got rid of pretty much everything but fish and occasional chicken. Then we had the Center for Mind-Body Medicine come out and train 150 to 200 individuals from our hospital. And our hospital paid their salary while they spent their time meditating, stressing, eating well, exercising, and dancing. So that's how heavily invested our uh, institution was in advancing the health of our, our uh our people. Mm -hmm. And then they obviously right, want that to trickle down so that these people can be a, a strong ripple to the next people and to all the patients. That's a talk about an investment. I mean, that's how it starts, though. You got to implement it and live it. That training really I'm like, wow, I'm going to I'm going to start doing more stress. Mm -hmm. I really found that when I coupled my Tibetan bowl with the diaphragmatic breathing, the, the rapidness of my entering a relaxation state was so much quicker and so much um, more facile than doing it in independent of the sound. And so I really like coupling different sensory inputs to, to get to, to stress reduction or to get to pain. So I, I like doing music or aromatherapy with acupuncture or doing subtle suggestions with acupuncture. I was going uh, out to eat. We we're taking uh, my children out for their mother's birthday. And I had a, a cheeseburger. And I looked at it. This is the last time I'm ever going to do this. The reason that I said that was not my health. And it wasn't public health. And it, it wasn't the ethical. It was ecological. That as I was staring across at my children, and I had recently seen their mother, interacting with a little boy mm -hmm. and it just made my heart sing i'm like ah one day it's going to be her grandchild and we're going to take them hiking in the mountains we're going to go snorkeling we're going to do all these amazing things in my lifetime right the reefs are dying in my lifetime the glaciers are melting mm -hmm. and not just my lifetime I mean, this has really been accelerated over the last 15 20 years my kids 
my grandkids, their kids, we have to provide a better world than the direction we're heading. The policies with coal, you know, nobody's against these coal miners. No one's against these beef farmers. We just need to affect changes and we need to get transition to better energy sources, to better nutrition sources, ways that are sustainable. That was the iceberg for me to really change. Were you there when Dr. McDougall accepted his award? I did not hear him speak and I, yeah. I regret that because I heard it was an emotional and powerful message. So I expected, I don't know, maybe just a summary of what he's done, lessons that he's learned, I don't know. But anyway, he sort of challenged all of us to also take up the topic of, of climate change and, and start addressing it. And so we said, let's do something next year where we begin to talk about this, and that we're not just talking about the benefits of eating plant-based, but we're talking about the benefits to the planet. That's the way to go. I mean, that's mm -hmm. absolutely need, we need to heal. You know, we talk about uh, prevention, arresting and reversing, and that's what earth needs. Dr. Mackay, what is next for you? Well, that is a good question. <laughs> 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 I hope to be out of the unemployment line soon. <laughs> so right now I'm, I'm doing some teaching on uh, integrative pain through a project echo, quite a fun thing to do to interact with so many different professionals. But my goal is to uh, put the final uh, deal together to transfer, transfer these type of approaches to another institution uh, in central Indiana to uh, do that in conjunction with that institution of formalizing an integrative medicine approach. Mm -hmm. so that the um, integration of nutrition, of exercise, of cardiology, of pain happens across a, a multi-hospital, uh, multi-site institution and then can be done in a uh, coordinated and an effective um, model that really benefits everybody. Mm -hmm. One of my, and I, I don't mean to sound like an anti-elitist, but one of my problems is that we can't all afford to go to spas. We can't all afford to travel out to the, uh, the Poconos for a retreat and do those things. So we have to deliver it to where these individuals are. We have to change the way food islands exist, change the way exercise, you know, get into churches and do all that community work. And so my goal is to help uh, my coercive aspect that we use this as a platform to really help transform that population, not just with um, healthy eating or stress, but really their entire approach to tapping into their resilience and what's possible. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's the really lovely definition that I like from a, a Japanese poet about Ikigai, the process of allowing the self's possibilities to blossom. That's so beautiful. It goes in to what Aristotle and uh, the study of eudaimonics, that it is the purpose, the autonomy, the motivation, the self-improvement, the self you know, the cultivation of the human spirit and the love of that spirit is what is valued. And Aristotle, you know, said that he described eudaimonia as the highest of all human goods 
as the realization of one's true potential, which is mm. basically the same as Ikigai. Um, you know, a little bit more complex in the terms of its philosophical and ethical outreach, but nonetheless, that tapping into the potential. And so really want to try to weave that as much as possible and uh, really get the groups and small groups integrated in, in ways that work within that institution so that people can create changes that are meaningful to them, not just create changes that we want to see. Um, is there anything else that you'd like that maybe we haven't covered that you'd like to mention? I would just like to say thank you for the opportunity for me to editorialize like this and that if um, people are interested, they can for sure contact me. I've, because of that talk in Orlando, I've shared uh, the handbook and some of the nutrition and the, the sitting is the new smoking uh, <laughs> handout that we, we have. And I'd be happy to share any of the resources that we've generated with anyone who's interested. That's great. Uh, do they just email you for that? Sure. Just Palmer Mackay, 719 at gmail.com. And I'll include it in the bio uh, description of the uh, podcast. It's been absolutely wonderful getting to know you and learning about the work that you've been doing. Hope to see you, I guess, at PCRM's nutrition and medicine next year. Well, great. And now I have a reason to come to Texas. I, I, I didn't really have one before. There you go. You can always come and check us out or be a guest speaker. If you're ever in the area, you can speak to our group as well. Dr. Palmer Mackay, it's been a pleasure having you on the Plant-Based DFW podcast. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. You've been listening to the Plant-Based DFW podcast show. If you like our content, please like, share, and leave a review. Our goal is to provide quality episodes to help support the community.